Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. We are continuing to make our way through book one of the Psalms, and we are in this section from Psalm 10 to 14, where David is in the midst of being surrounded by the wicked, by the prosperity of all of his enemies, and he's meditating upon the nature of the wicked, the foolishness of the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And here in Psalm 13, he's lamenting. He's crying out to God in the midst of his sufferings. This comes before we get to Psalm 16 which is there a prophetic psalm especially that's even quoted in the book of Acts where we see the suffering servant who ultimately will not be given over to death. The enemies, in other words, of David and his offspring will not flourish forever. But in Psalm 13, he's in the midst of their flourishing. And because of that, He's crying out to God and ultimately looking for that salvation to come. So we'll begin by reading together Psalm of David. Psalm 13, we'll read verse 1 down to the end, verse 6. David writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, How long, O Lord, would you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest the enemy say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I've trusted in Your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in Your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Let's go again to the Lord. Father, it is the case that in the midst of affliction, we cannot see anything but the affliction. And we cry out with the words of David, how long, how long will you forget me? And like David, we need to be brought to a point where even in the midst of the affliction, we can sing. We can sing of your salvation. We can speak of it. That though it may be in the future, we can speak of it as if it is now because the promises that you have made are so certain, so unbreakable, that no matter what the immediate affliction is, it will fade away like the grass. It will wither and be gone in a moment. And with the view of eternity, it will be as but a breath of air. Lord, we need an eternal perspective. We need to be a people who in the midst of darkness grab hold of of Your promises and are able to look to them to anchor us 
so that as the waves may be tossing around us, we will be able to stand immovable, not because of our own resolve, but because of your keeping hand and power. So I pray, Lord, that as we heed the words of David, as we are instructed by his lament to lift up a complaint to you, a just complaint, while also trusting in the goodness of your word and that you will fulfill it, I pray that we too would be able to be a people who praise the name of Christ even in the midst of darkness so that his name may be glorified even in the midst of our crosses. We want your name exalted and your righteousness established in the world. So do this for us, we pray, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I think, um, I think probably many people are familiar with uh, Charles Spurgeon. Probably read some of his works before. Probably heard that name before. He is known historically as the Prince of Preachers. One of the greatest preachers who ever proclaimed the Word of God. He was a longtime Baptist pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 19th century. Ministered there for some 30 years. Many Christians today, of course, still read his works. We often read his devotional morning and evening. They're greatly helped by them. Others will read his sermons. Many ministers are helped by his commentaries and by his book on ministerial training called Lecture to My Students. He's one of the giants of the faith. But as is sometimes the case with giants, a mythology can be constructed around them. An idea that their lives were just one unending victory in the name of Christ after another. Spurgeon's life, though, was not like this. Many rightly look to him today as an example of a man who should be upheld and honored as holding firmly to the faith. Many looked at him in his own day with much disdain. Many people had fierce hatred towards him, especially Christians in the South when he went after slavery. Spurgeon lived a life of suffering in many respects. He was very often maligned and slandered by his enemies. He suffered from frequent bodily sicknesses. He was very much acquainted with the discouragements of pastoral ministry. On one occasion, he spoke of the discouragements coming from lukewarm members who would always have something critical to say after worship. And he said, this was in a, a lecture, lectures to his students, he said, what terrible blankets some professors are. Their remarks after a sermon are enough to stagger you. You have been pleading for life and death, and they have been calculating how many seconds the sermon occupied and grudging you the odd five minutes beyond the usual hour. I'm speaking about matters of eternity, and you're checking the clock? He had very public critics as well who variously disparaged him. On his right, he had those who publicly questioned the reality of his conversion. He was a very vocal Calvinist, but there were Calvinists who were more Calvinist than he was. Hyper-Calvinist, as they're called. Questioning the reality of his conversion because he didn't hold to everything they held to. 
On his left, he had the modernist who accused him of seeing things as too black and white. It's either you're saved or you're unsaved. It's either Christ is Lord or He's not Lord. It's too black and white. And they charged him with being egotistical and quote, not the shilly-shallying, timid, half-disguised egotism that cuts off its own head, but the full-grown, overpowering, sublime egotism that takes the chief seat as if by right. These are words written against him. He fought for gospel truth in the midst of the downgrade controversy and the church's embrace of liberalism. And he said to a friend in the same year that he would die, he said of that fight, this fight is killing me. It took such a toll on him. He often fought a battle with personal depression. Depression which he never excused as being no issue of sin. Indeed, he called it a vice and said he was ashamed of it. But nevertheless, it was a fight with sin he often had to fight. And at times, it would leave him weeping uncontrollably for reasons often he couldn't even explain. The point is that Spurgeon, for all his greatness and for all the reasons he is rightly upheld as a giant in the faith, was nevertheless greatly acquainted with affliction. Do you know what he said about those afflictions? He said that they were given to him. They were given to him by God to bring him closer and closer to his Savior. He said, quote, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie in a pity. But the good that I have received from my sorrows, from my pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. He said, affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Indeed, this is what we see all throughout Scripture. He's just bleeding the Bible here. Affliction is the hammer that shapes the saints into the image of Christ. It was through the affliction of Joseph being sold into slavery that God exalted him to the right hand of Pharaoh. It was through the affliction of Israel being enslaved that God manifested His power over Egypt and revealed Himself as the only true God and brought them as He promised He would into the promised land. It was through the affliction of the cross that Christ paid the penalty for our sins and was then exalted at the right hand of God. And in David's own life, it was through the affliction of persecution and betrayal Betrayal by his closest friends, by his counselors, that God kept his promises to him and established his throne. It all came through various crosses. Affliction is painful, that is, without question. It is the cause of all manners of sorrow, but it is also affliction and God's faithfulness through it that causes us to rejoice even more in His saving hand. 
It is affliction that causes us to look to Him and to Him alone as our only hope, often in ways that we had never done before. In ways that we had never thought to. And therefore, it is affliction that God uses to refine our faith in Him and in His promises like precious gold. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning teaches us this very same truth. In these short six verses, it carries us from affliction and lament to trusting in the Savior, to trusting in the Lord as our salvation. And I want you to see this today, this truth that it is affliction which brings us to trust in God. And we're going to do so by looking at the psalm in three parts. First, we'll look at the first couple of verses and see David's complaint. And then we'll see second, his petition. And then lastly, his faith. His complaint, his petition, and his faith. But to begin, let's look at David's complaint. He begins in verse 1 by asking the question, How long? How long, O Lord? This is, of course, not a question that is looking for an immediate answer. This is rhetorical. It is a cry. It is a plea for help in the face of suffering and sorrow. In fact, it is a cry of one who feels as if he has been wholly abandoned by God. He's utterly forsaken. He can't see the good hand of God right now. It's absent. We see the same kind of lament elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, where Habakkuk similarly cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. You're not answering. How long will I cry out violence? And you will not save. This is the cry of one who feels that he has been totally wronged. A great injustice, a great evil has been done to him and he looks to God for an answer and he hears nothing. That's David here. He expresses how he's feeling, how he feels that he's been utterly abandoned. He feels that God has forgotten him. Will you forget me forever? He says. When Scripture says that God remembers someone, it's often the case that what is meant is that he's, he's keeping his promises. He's keeping his word to them. When the people of Israel suffered under the hand of Pharaoh and they likewise cried out to God, we're told that God, quote, remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, it's the opposite. David says, you're forgetting. You're not remembering. God had made a covenant with him. He had promised David that he would establish his throne. And yet David often found himself on the run from his enemies who sought to kill him. And so it's as if in David's mind, God's promises aren't squaring with reality. This is what you've said, Lord. This is what's happening. They're not together. God is forgetting. He says further, how long will you hide your face from me? 
We've seen in other psalms the ironic blessing. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. Blessing that was about God's favor being given to His people. And here it's being turned on its head. David, in other words, feels as if he's under the curse of God. He's not under God's blessings. The priestly blessings of Aaron are not falling upon him. Rather, it's as if the curses of the law are falling upon him. He doesn't see the blessing of God's shining face, but rather he sees only the darkness of God's absence. And in addition to this, and because of his suffering, he is experiencing all kinds of inward turmoil. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? If you've endured a trial before, you know what this means. You know what this feels like. What happens to you in the midst of sorrow, you get all up in your head. You start questioning. You start wondering. Your thoughts are scattered. Why is this happening? What's the purpose of this? I don't understand this. Did I do something that brought this on? Did someone else do something that brought this on? You're in your head trying to figure out what's the meaning of this. Maybe if I do this, things will change. Maybe if I do that, things will get better. You speak to your soul. Is there any escape? Will it ever end? Will it ever get better? Will the rest of my days consist in this sorrow? That's where David is. That's his mental state right now. He's in his mind. He's all alone. Even when he does have a company of friends and of saints who are with him and helping him, he still, he still feels alone. Lost in the thoughts of his mind. And clearly, the turmoil and confusion that he's experiencing is likely related to his afflictions in light of the promises that God has made to him and not being able to square them. He says further, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that God made promises that this wouldn't happen. In the Davidic covenant, God said to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9 to 11, And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." David's looking around and he doesn't feel very restful. The enemies are on all sides. The enemies are arising from within his own house. And he's crying out to God, how long? How long until you fulfill your Word. This is what you said. This is what's happening. Sometimes it's the case that the darkness is so dark that the light of God's words are virtually impossible to see. 
We know that Christ Himself, who came to do the will of His Father, knowing that His humiliation and suffering would conclude with His exaltation and glory, Christ Himself was nevertheless greatly troubled by His sufferings. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says that in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. He knew His Bible. He knew Psalm 13. He knew how to say, How long, O Lord, will my enemies be exalted over me? And in the midst of His hanging on the cross, where He was bearing our sins and where He truly came under the curse of God. David was not under God's curse. Truly. He was covered with the righteousness of His greater offspring. Christ came under the curse really and truly. And as He hung hung on the cross in the shining face of God which truly turned against Him, He cried out, quoting the Psalms, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? How long will You forget Me? How long will You abandon Me? Even for believers like you and me, those who follow Christ, those who believe in the promises of God, the darkness of affliction can become so heavy that we would almost despair. The Apostle Paul said of his own sufferings in Asia, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9, he said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You ever heard that saying before? God never gives you more than you can handle? That's a lie. Probably constructed on a couch somewhere. In comfort and in ease. What did Paul say? We were utterly burdened beyond our strength. There was nothing left. I don't have any energy anymore. There's nothing within me that is not marked by sorrow. He speaks of his afflictions elsewhere in the same letter, and one of those is the constant anxiety he has over the churches. And lamentably, towards the end of, the li- uh, towards the end of his life, one of the things he says is that all who are in Asia have deserted me. Demas a man he had labored with. You see his name at the end of greetings in the New Testament letters as one who is with Paul, laboring with Paul. One of the final words that is said of him is Demas in love with the world has left me. It's not very optimistic. That's sorrow. That's David, that's Christ, that's Paul. Burden beyond his strength. Affliction of various kinds is very real, friends. We do ourselves no good. We do no one else any good when we either believe that being a Christian means that the rest of my life will be pleasant and easy comfortable and prosperous, or that by the sheer force of my will or the strength of my faith, I can just pretend it doesn't exist. I can act as if the things right in front of my face aren't there. 
That's not faith. That's not really the Christian life. It's not a mind game where you just pretend that things don't exist that are there. This is not how David responded to his affliction and neither is it how Jesus did his. There is a place for crying out to God in pain and in confusion and in turmoil and not having any other words to say except how long? Where are you? Where's your face? Even the saints in heaven who have been unjustly martyred go before God and they cry out, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You think when you die that your memory is wiped? You don't forget things in heaven. They remember. They know exactly who killed them unjustly for the name of Christ. And they're before the throne of God saying, Lord, you see how long. So friends, you take your complaints to God like a helpless widow seeking justice. You take them to Him and you let your voice be like that of the blood of Abel crying out from the ground so that He will hear. But of course, with your complaints, you take your petitions as well. This is the second thing we see in the psalm. David's petition. What is it that he wants God to do? He wants Him to act according to His Word. David is not offering up a prayer here that has nothing to do with the Word of God. It's not a thousand chariots or a pile of gold or earthly fame. He doesn't believe or subscribe to the American Gospel. If I just ask for God for prosperity and I live a good life, He's going to make things great. He doesn't believe in that. Now what does he say? He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider. Take note. See me. Look at me. He said in Psalm chapter 10, verse 14, in response to the wicked who believe that God will not hold them accountable for their sin, he said, you do see, for you note, you consider mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. God is a God who sees evil. He sees injustice. And David here is saying, look at me. I'm suffering under this injustice that you hate. And he's asking, he's asking for the Lord to rule in his favor because he is innocent. Psalm 17, verse 5 says, This is David speaking. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I am among the upright. So what is he saying? Look at me. He's not talking here about his internal guilt of sin. We're all guilty of sin. He's saying, I haven't, I haven't wronged these people who are trying to kill me. I'm innocent. Look at me. Light up my eyes. This is the flip side of having God's face shine upon him. God makes his face shine upon David. If he blesses him, his eyes will be lit up. And he asked the Lord to do this, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The logic of the petition is simple. If David dies, his enemies win. 
If his enemies win, God's promises fail. Because God said he'd establish David's throne. So if he dies and David's bloodline comes to an end, it's over. And so he's saying, keep your word to me. You have anointed me as king. You've promised to establish me and my throne. Don't let my enemies kill me. Don't let them boast that they've prevailed over me. For in prevailing over me, they prevail over you. And of course, this particular petition was fulfilled in David's life as he was eventually delivered from the hands of his enemies on numerous occasions. I think it finds its greatest fulfillment in his son, Jesus David was certainly delivered from his earthly enemies, but he still died. And he remains buried. Christ is the one who is given victory even over the sleep of death. When he offered up his prayers and supplications with cries and tears, he offered them up to the one, Hebrews says, he knew was able to save him from death. And as Hebrews tells us, he was heard because of his reverence. Not even the enemy of death could prevail and boast over Christ. Because on the third day, in accordance with the promises of God, in accordance with the Scriptures, He not only conquered sin, but He conquered death itself when He rose from the grave never to be shaken. And in doing this, in fulfilling the psalm to its fullest extent, He also secured the promise of God that is extended to all His people. The promise that if we too are united to Christ, if we are counted as His people, if we do not join ourselves with the wicked, if we don't swear allegiance to Absalom and heed the counsel of Ahithophel and to Satan, but we rightly bow the knee to the right King Jesus, Neither will we be given over to the power of death. It's a promise. Yes, you may die, your body may die, but our death will only properly be called falling asleep. Why? Why does the New Testament authors love using that language of death? You fell asleep. It's not because they subscribe to some bizarre doctrine of soul sleep where you're just unconscious for all eternity until Christ comes back. That's not what they believe. It's because when you fall asleep, what happens? Morning comes. And you wake up. And in the same way, when the body dies, when you fall asleep, you are trusting that at God's appointed time, when the morning sun rises and the face of God shines, you too will rise. Live with Christ forever. You will put on immortality. And you will be clothed with glory and honor. Jesus said before He raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. He is, as Paul put it, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Yes, it is the case that God has also made promises, not just to David, but also to us. And one of those promises, perhaps one of the greatest promises of all, is that if we are united to Christ in His death, we shall also be united to Him in a resurrection like His. And when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Therefore, like David and like the saints who have gone before us, we can join in offering up our prayers and supplications to God. On the basis of His promises, we can confidently and boldly appeal to Him to fulfill His Word. We can offer the same prayers that David was offering. How long will you allow my enemies to be exalted over me? And then we can look and we can wait. And then when the righteous God determines, I will now arise. We will have victory over enemies, over sin, and over death. Which leads us lastly to the third part of the psalm, which is where we see David's faith. David is suffering. He's in the midst of it. He has internal turmoil on the one hand because of all of the conflicting thoughts, the speaking to his soul, the taking counsel in his mind. His thoughts are everywhere and he has external enemies coming against him. But in the midst of this turmoil, what does he also do? He continues trusting in the promises of God. He says in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We've seen this word before. You see it very often throughout Scripture. Steadfast love. It's a covenantal word. It's, it's a word of promise. It speaks of God's determination to keep His promises to His people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12 says, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He made promises to the patriarchs. And the single term that can summarize those promises is steadfast love. God's covenant faithfulness. Or Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. Or in accordance with the covenant. In accordance with the promises of God. And on it, on this throne, will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Or Psalm 18, verse 50. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David is thinking about the covenant. The covenants. He's thinking about the promises of God. And it's in those promises that he trusts. Indeed, it's the fact that he is in the midst of great suffering that propels him to trust in those promises all the more. He's longing for their fulfillment. If everything was comfortable and nice, you may forget. But it's the affliction that is driving him to long for, to hope for all the more the steadfast love of God and His promises. 
And even though everything around him is mitigating against the fulfillment of those promises, even though the events in his life make it seem like he has been presently totally abandoned, it forces him to reckon with God's Word. How do I make sense of this? God says this, and this is what's happening. And what does he do when he reckons with the Word of God? When he comes to the promises? Does he say to himself, well, I don't see them being fulfilled right now. I guess God's a liar liar, and, and, and move on. Does he abandon the faith? And so some people do when they're met with affliction. They're like the seed was sown on rocky ground in Jesus' parable. They endure for a while. You know, they, they, they sprout up real quick. The Word of God comes to them. They receive it with joy. They're happy. And you're happy for them. You hear their testimony. I love Jesus. I'm saved. He's so good to me. And then when affliction comes, on account of the Word of God, they fall away. That's how many people are. That's not David. No, for him, the suffering becomes the very thing that propels his faith forward and causes him to hope in God with even more confidence. He's like Abraham believing that God will keep His promise to give him an offspring even though his wife is barren. She can't have children. That's not physically possible, God. And yet he believes. He believes that God can give life in the midst of death. It was like Abraham when he was tested told that he was to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. This is the child of promise. And yet he's to be given over to death? What does he have to do? He's got to reckon with the Word of God in light of what's presently before him. And how does the author of Hebrews tell us Abraham is reasoning through this? He believes in the promise of God so much that even if His Son, the promised offspring, is given over to death, God will be able to raise Him from the dead. That's some strong faith. That's taking the promises of God and orienting your whole worldview and your mindset around the only thing that can't be broken. Even when everything in the world is chaotic. That's the rock. And that's what David did. But the believer, it is often our very afflictions that is the means that God uses to increase our faith. That's what we want, right? I'm sure you pray that prayer. God, give me more faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know what you're asking for. A hammer to chisel. A fire to purify. You want strong faith, the faith has to be exercised. This is often what happens. Our faith grows through the affliction. Even the Apostle Paul, when he spoke of the afflictions that he endured and that made him despair of life itself, he's just ready to go. I don't know if I want to live anymore. He's despairing of life itself. You know what he went on to say? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. 
This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. All of this that happened, this affliction that was beyond my strength, was so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's David here. He's relying on God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And as he trusts in God in the midst of affliction, it leads him to rejoice and to sing. I will sing to the Lord, he says. That's, friends, that's good medicine. Hearing babies is great medicine. Don't ever be ashamed of having babies who are joyful. But you know what else is good medicine for the soul? Singing. Singing the promises of God. I will never forget this. Remember it often. It is a help to my own soul whenever there is affliction. But there was a time, we lived in Louisville, where we came under a great affliction. We experienced a suffering that many do experience like us. We had lost a child. And when that happened, it was as if everything went silent. It was just dark and there's no light at all. And you can't make sense of it. Why? Why? That's all. A few days later, it wasn't long after, it was Sunday. So what do we do? We do what believers should do. We gathered with the saints of God to worship God. And we came to church, and one of the songs that we were singing that day was, It Is Well With My Soul. Okay. My soul doesn't feel well right now. And that's what we're singing. It is well with my soul. We're singing the promises of God. We're singing about what Christ will do when He returns. We're singing that He has regarded my helpless estate. He has shed His own blood for my soul. We're singing of a trumpet sounding of the clouds being rolled back like a scroll. And saying over and over again, it is well with my soul. And you know what? It was. In the midst of affliction, we were reminded of the promises of God. And the poor heart was lifted up. So it is with David. He's in the midst of pain. He's in the midst of it. Verse 6 doesn't change the context. He's in it. He's suffering. He's crying out. How long? And then what does he do? He sings as he looks at the promises of God and the steadfast love of God. He sings the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. The bountiful dealings of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, may not be what He is presently seeing, but it is as certain, it is a fixed surety for Him because it is the Word of God that David can hope in, can sing of, 
It, has, it is as if, in other words, it's as if the Word of God and the promises of God that speak of things to come have broken into the present. He needs them to. He needs the promises of God to come into His present now. And it's as if they're doing that. And he can sing, the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. When we are in the midst of affliction, that is what we need. We need eternity, as it were, to reach into the present and bring us into the future. I don't think it's a coincidence that another well-known place in Scripture where we see Scripture speaking of the fullness of our salvation as if it's already complete. Romans 8, where Paul says that those who have been predestined and called and justified are also glorified. That's the, that's the final state. And he's speaking of it as if it's done. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is in the same context where he goes on to speak of the tribulation of believers and he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's their present experience. And in the midst of that, Paul's saying, you're glorified. God called you. There's no losing you. He's grabbed you. He holds you. No one will snatch you from His hand. Not even death. And therefore, through these things, in these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. When affliction comes, we need eternity. We need the power of God, the grace of the cross, and the power of the resurrection to break into our present. And that's what faith does. It is like a net that you cast into the deep, dark sea. And you trust that God will fill it. And then you pull it up, and lo and behold, the net is full. And it's full of the promises of God and the grace of God. And when we find the net full, we too can sing, presently the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. And so in your afflictions, brothers and sisters, you are to hope in God. And your afflictions will be the means by which God will conform you into the image of His Son and the means by which the Gospel of Christ and the name of Christ will be exalted and will be seen by all on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as Your Word teaches us, the discipline when it comes is never pleasant. It's always painful. Affliction, when it comes, brings with it all manners of sorrow. There are trials that even the people of God in the first century as we see in the New Testament had to endure, but Your Word tells us that in and through it, in these crosses, You are conforming us to be true image bearers of God. The image of God was corrupt in the fall, and now You are restoring and reconciling us. So I pray, Lord, that in the midst of whatever sorrows may come our way, we, like David, will be able to hold on to Your Word.
you will keep us and we will be able to sing the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.